The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. This will be my, my last year doing this. I've been connected with this foundation most of the last couple decades, and it's been a real reward. Uh, I've seen a lot of growth, a lot of great events, and this is another one. Uh, when Mrs. Omar Bradley died in 2004, she donated her extensive personal holdings to fund the, the Omar Bradley Foundation here at the War College and at the Army Heritage and, Edu and Education Center. The foundation pays annually for 20 scholarships for active duty officers pursuing research in history and mathematics, most but not all that application uh, by faculty at the U.S. Military Academy. But again, it, it, it's been broader than that as well and some of the people that have taken advantage of those opportunities. The funds also pay for other historical programs, including the annual lecture, which we are executing here today. We usually hold it in October, but we moved it earlier this year to fit the schedule of, of, our, of our speaker, uh, Michael O'Hanlon. We appreciate those students who have found their way out to AHEC this early in the academic year. I know I see a couple floating around here. I'm glad you could make it. Uh, and, and we are also linked online. So hopefully there will be a lot of viewers online as well. And I suspect uh, you will all find the experience tonight stimulating and provocative. We're also very grateful for our dedicated regulars. And I see a lot of them here tonight as well who have followed these lectures for a long, long time, longer than, probably longer than I have been here. Uh, the distinguished list of speakers for this annual lecture includes Pulitzer Prize winners like Rick Atkinson and James McGregor Burns, uh, Bancroft Award winners like David Kennedy, moonwalking astronauts like Buzz Aldrin, if some of you can remember his unusual talk that he gave to us many years ago, and many distinguished historians covering many, many varied subjects. This year, we are privileged to feature Michael, to feature Michael E. O'Hanlon, who holds the, the Phil Knight Chair in Defense and Strategy at the Brookings Institution, where he is also Director of Research and Director of the Talbot Center on Foreign Policy Program. He is the author of some 20 books, along with many insightful opinion pieces as well. His latest book looks at American wars from the Civil War to Afghanistan, cautioning us that wars never proceed along the path belligerents expect. And quick, cheap victories are extremely rare. At a time when I find too many of our leaders focused on winning the first battle and expecting low-level or short wars, he has much to inform us about other possibilities, about other possible and more likely courses future confrontations might take based on his extensive review of our past. So I ask you all to pay close attention to what he says. Michael, it's all yours. I also want to... Uh, Thank everyone here and apologize that we're in some sense declaring fall to be beginning tonight, at least in Car No, I, I think we should agree we're not doing that, right? This, is, this just happens to be a presentation usually given in the fall that happens to happen in the middle of the summer. Let's, let, let's try to hold on to that a little longer. But, but seriously, I really wanna thank you for the privilege to come here and speak about military leadership, especially in World War II, but leading a bit into Korea and Vietnam. That's the topic I was asked to address tonight. It's not really what I wrote my book about. The book that I wrote that uh, 
some of you may be kind enough to purchase afterwards, is really designed to understand military campaigning. So as people in this audience know better than I, the term campaign is often used to explain a series of activities, maneuvers, and or battles over a period of time, over a certain geographic zone, trying to contribute to a strategic objective. So it's a series of operations. And it usually, you know, it obviously depends on the war, the theater. It can be hundreds of miles or thousands. It can be weeks, months, or years. But a campaign, as distinct from battles, is designed to sort of provide the connective logic. And it's often described, and people like John Noggle and others in this group understand this very well and have taught me about it more than I've taught them. It's often thought of as the intermediary level between strategic goals and tactical operations. So it's what sort of explains what you're trying to do with your tactics that connect together to serve your strategic objectives. I wanted to write that kind of a book because I felt I had never found one to read that treated warfare at the level that as a strategist, I really wanted. And full confession, I am not one of these people who grew up at age 12 looking for the latest 600 page biography of Patton. It just wasn't my thing, I wasn't that guy. Nothing against those of you who were, and I'm sure we have a lot in the room. But what I wanted to understand was war at the conceptual level. What determined outcomes? What were people trying to do with their various concepts? And what might they have done differently? Uh, what were the real drivers of what happened? And at what point in any given war did victory become likely in the way that it ultimately took shape? And one thing I was really struck by, and this is all sort of a warm up to my main point tonight, which is to talk through about eight or nine famous historical figures and put forth a little bit of my sense in intuitive, rough terms of how well they did. And I'll look forward to your reactions in the discussion that follows. But what I really wanted to do in the, in the main book was again, to get at that level of the conceptual side of war and also the uncertainty of war. What I was really struck by as I wrote the book was how many of the wars that I looked at, major American wars since 1861. So the Civil War, the World Wars, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. How many of them really could have gone a different way, even one or two or three years into the war? And it's not something that we always remember because we all know history, we learn history looking back. But of course, as my colleague Bob Kagan likes to say, history is made moving forward, which means that the participants, even if you could look back and say it was pretty likely that by 1943, the allies were gonna win World War II, they didn't necessarily know that at the time. And they certainly didn't know it for a fact. They were still trying to achieve it. So as people in this room know all too well, war is unpredictable. It's also often much more difficult, as Conrad just said, than expected, especially by the people who come up with a war plan for a rapid win. Think Vladimir Putin last February. He thought he'd win quick. He wasn't the first person in history to think that way. We've even had Americans who have thought that way about some of the wars that we got into. And so that's what I was trying to do with the book. And uh, I'm not going to burden you with that particular approach. We can come back to that level of campaign analysis in the discussion if you like. What I was asked to do tonight is to reflect as sort of an amateur historian. And I admit that's what I am. I'm not as good as the historians in this group, in this room at, at archival research, at the true profession of history. I'm a strategist trying to do enough history and learn enough history to apply it usefully to the problems of today. And so what I was asked to do is to examine a few key military leaders. And this is dangerous stuff to do in a group like this or anywhere, because of course we all build up our heroes. And a lot of them deserve to be heroes. 
and probably two-thirds of the people I'm going to discuss, I would say, deserve to be heroes, but flawed heroes. And there's almost nobody. Here's a little sneak preview. The person I like best of the eight or nine I'm going to talk about tonight is General Ridgway. And he's the one that, in my admittedly cursory examination of the biographies of the eight or nine people I'm going to talk about tonight, he's the one that stands out to me as having made no major mistakes and having really been the person at the moment we needed. There are other people who are great, and I'll get to them in a minute, but there are a number who had surprisingly important flaws in their record, which is not meant to be a damning point of criticism. It's just meant to be a reflection that they're all human. And in the educational programmatic sense of what we're trying to do tonight, perhaps, knowing that there are now, a, there's a, a new group of young to middle-aged scholars, but officers coming into Carlisle and looking to have a year of of education before going on to more senior positions, and certainly a lot of chief of staff positions, senior advisory positions. You should remember, as you know, again, better than I, the people you're advising, even though they have three and four stars on their shoulder, are just as capable of making mistakes as the rest of us. So this is meant to be an empowerment speech about the importance of giving good advice to people who may be heroes, may be brilliant, but still are very capable of making mistakes. And we have a system where it's sometimes, because of all the polish and all the reflection and the stars and the formality and the things that go along with military leadership, it's sometimes hard to challenge them. And we've got to remember that we should. So that's sort of the moral of the story if you're looking for a broader purpose to my presentation. But now let me get into the actual specifics. And again, uh, my only defense about saying some provocative things and maybe even getting a thing or two wrong that I hope you'll correct me about in the discussion. My only defense is this is the way I was asked to frame this discussion tonight, uh, so we'll see how I do. So I'm not gonna talk about every five-star admiral or general from World War II. I'm gonna talk about the eight or nine who came up most in my effort to explain World War II, as well as Korea and Vietnam a little bit in campaign terms. So. This is not meant to be a thorough study of leadership, but the people I want to talk about, I want to talk about Admiral Bull Halsey, General Douglas MacArthur, uh, General Curtis LeMay, Admiral Ernest King, George Patton, Dwight Eisenhower, Chester Nimitz, George Marshall, and Matthew Ridgway. And you can tell by the number of people I just put on the agenda, <laughs> I'm going to go fast. And, and, and I'm hoping that if you think I'm unfair, let me have it in the discussion. If anything, I'm going to try to err on the side of going a little short so we have time for you to fix the record straight. Because again, if there's one thing I care about most, it's not that not claiming that I've got any one of these eight or nine individuals 100% right. It's the overall theme that it's sort of easy to forget because of the way we sometimes learn history. It's easy to forget that even these greats made a lot of mistakes. And I think that's just a point worth reflecting on when you think about strategy going forward. So let me start with three that I'm not the biggest fan of. And uh, it's not to say that I disrespect them or fail to appreciate some of their broader achievements. But when I look back at the totality of the record, as I saw it reading and writing for this book, uh, I, I had a lot that I wished had been a little different in their career. Let me start. You probably don't usually begin a talk at Carlisle with Admiral Bull Halsey but let me just do so, that um, in both the Battle of Lake Gulf um, in, in 1944 and then the ensuing um, 
inability to steer around a major typhoon a few months later. This guy basically almost lost his fleet twice through mistakes that were easily foreseeable at the time. In one case, he allowed himself to be sort of lured away from protecting a landing fleet that was trying to make its way into the Philippines in the gradual progression of army and marine forces upward from Australia towards Japan. That of course culminated in 1945. Never had to quite thankfully occupy the, or attack the Japanese islands per se, but that was one of the two major Pacific movements as, as you'll recall. And what happened was that his job was to essentially provide cover for a landing force moving into the central Philippines, but he allowed himself to be sort of distracted by a Japanese carrier fleet that barely even had any airplanes on it and that decided to sail north. And Halsey chases after them with the entirety, more or less, of his aircraft carrier capability, leaving the landing party vulnerable even to smaller kinds of potential Japanese attack. And it was only because of some good warfighting by others who didn't have the big ships, didn't have the command that Halsey did, that that landing party was protected from what could have been a catastrophic assault by Japanese forces as it was trying to make its way ashore. And then if that wasn't bad enough, Bull Halsey, as he was known, then um, sort of sailed recklessly. I hope he doesn't have any relatives in the crowd tonight. If so, I apologize. I'm sure he's a good guy, but uh, just two big mistakes that I'm gonna itemize. Uh, he, you know, he, he didn't watch out for this typhoon when it was clearly predicted and really should have sunk his fleet. And he was lucky that it didn't in the end. So that's sort of topic number one. And uh, my, don't worry, I'm not gonna be equally harsh on everyone, but I'm starting with, just to set the tone, I'm starting with three that, that I found maybe less impressive than I expected is the way to put it. Because most of these people I had read about a little Although the next two, I MacArthur and LeMay, I knew pretty well before I started the project. But but Halsey's an example of someone you you know you go to Annapolis down where I live and you you see all this great you know paraphernalia celebrating his career and he's got this tough name Bull Halsey and he just seems like he must have been this you know kick butt kind of guy and it turns out he made as many mistakes as the next guy. Um, Douglas MacArthur, we probably don't need to spend a lot of time on him because he's already one of the most controversial figures in American military history. And so there's no need for me to retread all of that territory. But what I will say is, and again, Conrad and others may want to correct me or think I'm being too tough, but I still can't believe he let his airplanes be destroyed in the Philippines, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor, <laughs> but basically being wing to wing. And it's one thing we can have a, the guys who, were in charge at Pearl Harbor got fired. But MacArthur was in charge of a different American presence the next day, didn't take any precautions. And not only didn't he get fired, he got lionized, and then he got command in the next war. So when I look at MacArthur, you know, he probably did a pretty good job in post-war occupation of Japan. The Incheon landings in September of 1950 were brilliant, and it's not as if everybody supported those, so I'll give him credit there. And I'll also even give him a little bit of not credit, but protection on the issue of going north above the 38th parallel in 1950, because even though it was, I think, perhaps a mistake, certainly a mistake to do it the way he did, sort of just running up to the end of North Korea and leaving himself vulnerable to Chinese invasion, nobody in Washington told him not to. And I'm going to come back to that in some criticisms of some other people, including one person in particular you may be surprised to hear me criticize uh, in a few minutes. But... I'm going to give MacArthur a little bit of 
cover that a lot of people shared in the decision to go north of the 38th parallel once we had done the Inchon landing. And I, if I'm going too fast for some of you and too slow for others, I apologize. I realize there's probably an uneven uh, you know, awareness of military history here, but you'll all recall the North Koreans attacked South Korea in June 1950, basically pushed us almost the, the tiny American presence and the South Koreans almost all off the peninsula. We held on at the Pusan perimeter. Then MacArthur built up forces and did his Inchon landing over by Seoul on the west side in September. And then we had the momentum for a couple months until the Chinese intervened and, and then various things ensued. I'll give MacArthur again a little bit of a break on the fact that a lot of people shared in the responsibility for the decisions that were made in Korea. But I have to blame him for what happened to his airplanes on December 8th and uh, a lot of other things too. Uh, you know, I don't personally have a lot of use for that level of ego. And I think the military leaders I've known of this generation don't have that kind of attitude, don't have that kind of ego, understand civil military relations, understand their constitutional uh, subordinate status to a commander in chief. And even the ones who wind up in controversial places like uh, General Milley, uh, they're not comparable to, to MacArthur. So uh, this is not a guy that I have a lot of use for personally, but I realize there's a lot of military genius there too, and I should be fair and move on before I make any of the great MacArthur fans in the audience any more upset. But so in case you thought I was just here to pick on um, Navy and Army though, let me go after Curtis LeMay next. And I, I'm gonna try to be fair here as well. He was sort of you know, one of the architects of strategic bombing. My good friends, uh, T Steve and Tammy Biddle are your fellow Carlisle um, residents and spectacularly good military analysts. And of course, Tammy is one of the greatest in the world at strategic air power. And I know we tried to bring down Japan and Germany in a more humane way at first by attacking parts of their economy that we thought perhaps would be maximum leverage points. And we hoped that we wouldn't have to just essentially burn down their cities and then attack them with atomic weapons. And so I'm even gonna give Curtis LeMay a little bit of understanding that in this kind of a war, which was so horrible, that he and others who were devising these plans at the time uh, were in an all-out fight with an enemy, with, with enemies that were so horrific morally and otherwise that there really was an imperative to win and win fast. But I'm concerned more about the legacy of what that strategic bombing from World War II did for the way we fought Korea and Vietnam, where I think it led to terrible misuse of air power. And uh, so, Curtis LeMay is not a person that a lot of people lionize, but I just needed to get in my dig at him myself along the way. Now let me get a little nicer before you all think I'm just a mean guy from Washington who came up here to spoil your nice summer night. And I'm gonna start talking about people that I think uh, were generally very successful military leaders, but may have had a flaw or two that is worth talking about and worth putting on the table just for this broader purpose of first of all, making the military discussion interesting, you know, to have it be nuanced and not just all about celebrating superstar heroes from yesteryear, but also to drive home my point that these senior leaders really do need brilliant colonels by their side because there's nothing about their stars that makes them infallible. And we see that time and again. Probably not a particularly surprising result to any of you, but I'm still gonna keep drumming home that point. So Admiral Ernest King, the Chief of Naval Operations in World War II. You know, pretty good record overall. I mean, you know, the idea of the Europe first strategy was partly a Navy strategy, partly the idea of prioritizing the Atlantic and Germany over the Pacific. And yet he didn't take that idea too far. There was still a lot of prioritization of the Pacific. 
and we wound up uh, being successful already at Midway early in, or in you know, spring of 1942, not that long into the war. And ultimately in the fall of 1942, successful down in the Coral Sea, Guadalcanal area. And so he maintained enough capability in the Pacific that we weren't just overdoing the Europe first strategy. So I don't wanna criticize that too much. And I, I also think it was ultimately okay. Some historians don't like the fact that Admiral Nimitz went westward on the island hopping campaign and General MacArthur went down under and sort of through the Australia-Philippine axis, ultimately came up Japan a different way. And some people think that was wasteful to have two separate campaigns. I'm okay with that myself. I don't mind keeping the uh, enemy guessing and we had the capacity to do it by the end. So I don't see any big problem there. My main, the main thing that struck me about Admiral King that I would say was a, um, you know, a, a defect in his overall performance, but still not a, not a catastrophic one, was the Battle of the Atlantic and the way in which he tried to prepare the US Navy to get shipping across to Europe. And generally speaking, most of the big right decisions on how to fight the Battle of the Atlantic better, as I read the history, came more from the scientists, came more from the technicians, not so much from the institutional Navy which actually did not want to invest in certain kinds of smaller carriers that could be escorts, for example, or longer range land-based airplanes that could try to protect some of the littoral regions where these ships were coming in contact with German subs. Some of the stuff that wasn't sexy from a Navy perspective, you know, as military services are wont to do, received less investment than they should have. And so I think one of the big stories of World War II, we're all reminded of this, watching Oppenheimer this summer is just how much it was a whole of nation, whole of country effort and the role of the scientists and the technologists, not to mention Rosie the Riveter, not to mention the cryptologists. Thank God for them figuring out what was gonna happen with Midway, for example. There were, there were so many people who were not in uniform who were absolutely central to our victory. Um, and you know that's fine and that's good. That's the way it should be, especially in such a existential and huge war but I thought that Admiral King was a little tone deaf to a lot of what he was hearing about the need for some of these technologies too long. And maybe the last big turning point as I see it in World War II, some of the turning points were already starting to happen in 1942 and even in 1941 when the Soviets pushed back the Germans um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the fights around um, Stalingrad and St. Petersburg and, and elsewhere. Um, some of the turning points were already happening by then, but it took us a while with the Battle of the Atlantic. And I think some of the reason was the institutional Navy's reluctance to invest in things it should have known it needed. Uh, I'm not gonna go too far into a George Patton discussion. Uh, maybe I'll leave that to you. We'll just tease that one up. I'm, I'm a little ambivalent on him, um, but I don't know that I have a strong enough view to waste your time on it. So let me just move on. But if anybody wants to touch on Patton in discussion, consider yourselves invited. Um, and of course you're invited to talk about anything, including uh, any of these other gentlemen uh, as well. But let me move right along. And I did mention Admiral Nimitz, commander of Pacific Fleet. He was, a, I think, an effective commander. A lot of people did a pretty good job figuring out how to do these amphibious assaults, these combined arms campaigns that involve naval air and Marines and Army amphibious. And it was really an impressive testament to also our military experimentation of the 1930s. We had figured out in advance of World War II a lot of the technologies that were probably gonna be relevant and necessary. And I think the team that was involved in these island hopping efforts in the Pacific, it was a big team. 
but I think they did a pretty impressive job. And so Nimitz, you know, he may may have other mistakes and and uh, defects that I'm not as centrally aware of, but I thought his central role was was good. Just as I said earlier, I thought the the central direction of the war made sense with you know chief of staff or chairman of the Joint Chiefs, essentially Admiral Leahy, uh, General George Marshall, obviously um, Eisenhower. Uh, obviously, you know, some of the other top leadership in Washington. I thought the basic way they worked with the Brits, the basic way they had the Europe first strategy, the patience with which we developed the approach to liberating France. Uh, I think it was about on the right schedule, even though a lot of people were clamoring for a different, maybe faster pace. So a, a lot of that went well. And I thought the general logic of most of the big pieces was militarily and strategically correct. So let me now talk about Eisenhower and Marshall a little bit and, and acknowledge that we were lucky to have such outstanding individuals who were you know, very just meticulous, thoughtful, strategic, I think very decent as well. You know? And uh, by the way, one thing about King that um, <laughs> it was funny what his daughter said about him once. Somebody uh, asked about Admiral King and, and his daughter said, he's the most even-tempered man I've ever met. He's always in a rage. And, and so, so, so again, that's, I have a you know, little bit of a mixed feeling about King when his own daughter talks to him that way. Is, and, and sometimes rage is a useful uh, attribute in leadership, but I tend to be of the school that says it should be minimized, not the constant demeanor of the, uh, of the leader. And with Eisenhower and Marshall, I thought, again, I'm not as much of a, I, probably a number of people in this room have read the 500,000 word biographies uh, multiple times over, more than I have. Uh, I'm, I'm more of an amateur admirer of these two. But one thing I really do appreciate is the fact that they had, you know, they were far away from the front lines, but they had enough of a feel of the battlefield to understand what the fighting was like, and yet enough focus on the big picture to always stay at the campaign and strategic levels in their thinking. And I was fortunate enough when I released this book in January at Brookings that General McChrystal was kind to come and be my discussant for that. And he said, uh, he said, Mike, I want to thank you for the book because, you know, even for those of us who have been fortunate to be generals, it's just too easy to slip back into the tactical perspective on everything and to micromanage or to want to micromanage and to be so consumed about what happened today that it affects your, your moods, your planning, your ability to focus on the longer term. And I think Eisenhower and Marshall had the ability to really think about the war comprehensively, but also link strategy and campaigns to tactics and technologies. So I wanna give them a lot of credit, but I did promise to be a little bit surprising and even nuanced on all eight or nine of the people I'm discussing. So let me actually offer one gentle word of criticism about each one. And it's not about World War II in either case. And again, I'm giving you my impressions from trying to do a survey of American military history that was not about biographies of any of these individuals. It was meant to focus on the campaign level and strategy level analysis of our major wars since 1861. So that's the best I can do at, at pleading for uh, forgiveness if I get some of this too simple. Uh, I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but I, I, I'm sure I'm getting some of it too simple. But with Marshall, as you know, Marshall had an amazing career in World War II essentially helping Roosevelt run the war from Washington. And then uh, he had an amazing career as Secretary of State with the Marshall Plan, 
rebuilding Europe and helping us develop the kind of strength and alliances that we were going to need for the next great geostrategic competition that was already unfolding, which was, of course, the Cold War. But then maybe, maybe he accepted one job too many because you may recall he then became Secretary of Defense from 1950 to 1951 during the Korean War. And he and Truman did not figure out how to handle MacArthur. It took them six months or more to figure out this guy needed to be fired a lot sooner than he was. And it also, you know, it's easier perhaps to do battlefield circulation from Washington these days when you can do VTCs and then you can fly over for two days and then fly back. And, but they had planes back then. And I don't get the impression that people like um, Marshall were spending enough time understanding the conflict on the ground. It was probably a little too late in his career for him to be Secretary of Defense. And what happened as MacArthur launched US forces north of the 38th, and not just launched them, you know, but also disparaged any idea that we should slow down, left them tactically exposed, left their flanks exposed, ignored intelligence about the idea that there were already Chinese on the ground, which we should have seen coming. Uh, rejected ideas for any kind of a buffer zone up near the Yalu River where North Korea meets China on the grounds that that would have been appeasement, and just told the troops that they would be home by Christmas, uh, and had a big Thanksgiving dinner all up and down the extent of North Korea when we thought we had won the war and were only weeks away from concluding it. Little did we know the Chinese had basically already started their counteroffensive, and we would find out really, really the hard way the next week. But that was a lot of poor tactical and intelligence and strategic thinking by MacArthur, but it also was poor back in Washington. We did not handle that phase of the war well at all, in my judgment. And I would give Secretary of Defense Marshall a little bit of the blame. So uh, it's not usually something we do in speeches about great military leaders to say anything critical of Marshall, but the Korean War that first year was so badly done that I'm going to share a little bit of the criticism a little more widely. Eisenhower, you know, he was president of Columbia for a while during the Korean War, then he was presidential candidate, then he came into office and managed to use some of the same threats of nuclear escalation that MacArthur had used and been fired for as president, which was his right as president, and managed to sort of force the war finally to a ceasefire, to a formal ceasefire. We've been stuck in negotiations for a year and a half with uh, the North Koreans and Chinese over prisoner of war repatriation issues and things like that. And finally, Eisenhower you know, managed to really make our enemies fear that we might just use nuclear weapons again if they were not willing to settle this. So I, I can understand why he would have done that at that time. So I'm not gonna criticize that. Vietnam. So this, at this point, Eisenhower's living up here in Pennsylvania. You know, it's nice living up here and feel everything feels comfortable and the air's good. And I would have thought that Eisenhower might have seen some of what was coming in Vietnam. But he was a gung-ho cheerleader. And it was fascinating through the mid-60s that he kept escalating the importance of Vietnam for U.S. national security strategy which of course was the standard thinking of the day, domino theory and all of that, but I think was wrong. It's easy to say now, but Eisenhower bought into that. And he also thought it was a war we absolutely could not afford to lose, which again was reflective of the attitude of the day 
but this is a small country in Southeast Asia. I mean, a guy who had been so good at thinking about which parts of Europe really mattered, which parts of Africa really mattered, and applied that kind of sound grand strategic analysis to the way he fought World War II, then sort of lost perspective in the 60s. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old, so I don't remember the 60s. I was born in 1961. But those of us, those of you who are a little bit older and remember them, I know you're probably saying to yourselves, you know, it, it, it felt so scary. The Cold War was just so everywhere. It was, it created so much anxiety and so much fear. And yeah, I get that. And I, that's why I'm a little bit more forgiving when Eisenhower threatens nuclear weapons to end the Korean War, for example. Just have a hard time with Vietnam. And maybe I'll start to wrap up here in just a second, but I'll, I'll drive home that one point separate from military leadership, although it, I think military leadership in the Vietnam War was generally poor for the first several years. It's the only war I studied where I thought overall U.S. military leadership throughout the conflict was generally poor. Plenty of exceptions. There were plenty of good leaders in Vietnam, especially later, and especially in the Marine combined action platoons and things like that earlier. I read John Noggle on this and learned a lot from him and others. Uh, there, was, there were a lot of bad leaders in other wars. But to me, Vietnam is the only war where the, the military and the civilians consistently underperformed and consistently got it wrong. But unfortunately, Eisenhower was part of the problem in that, not part of the solution. The guy who I do like, and I'll finish with him, on Vietnam, but especially on Korea, is General Ridgway. And some of you may know Ridgway better than I and may want to talk more about his World War II experiences, for example, in command of, I think, the 101st, if I recall correctly, and other things he did in that conflict. But what I really admire about Ridgway is how he salvaged our position in the Korean War. And you'll remember that, I got three minutes left, so I'll just quickly run through the history of what happened in Korea. By, you know, by the late fall of 1950, the Chinese were fully engaged and fighting. We had the disaster on the West Coast with the army racing back to South Korea because it was being tactically defeated by the Chinese. We had the Marines telling the greatest story in American history, American military history about a successful retreat that anyone ever wants to tell with the Chosin Reservoir story where they actually did a pretty impressive job of salvaging most of their forces once they realized they couldn't hold their positions in the north central part of the country, north central part of North Korea. And uh, so this was you know, a disaster. And then in December, about the same time, General Walker is killed in a traffic accident. He had been basically the top army general on the peninsula. And so at that point, MacArthur, who still lives in Tokyo and uh, you know, commands from that distance, chooses Matthew Ridgway as Walker's successor. And so Ridgway comes over and starts doing assessments of how people are fighting and starts underscoring the importance of seizing the high ground, of having 360 degree perimeter defense around your position so you can't be outflanked, of trying to patrol more consistently so you meet the enemy and don't just get ambushed by them when they approach your base because you were all hunkered down hoping that your superior air power and other things that Americans were getting too used to uh, enjoying uh, a great advantage and maybe could save the day and you could throw away old fashioned tactics. Ridgway said, no, let's go back to proper infantry tactics. Let's put shoe leather on the ground. Let's stay up high. Let's protect our flanks. Let's protect our 360 perimeter. And also, let's not get crazy unrealistic about what any offensive can do to seize back territory. This is going to be a war 
that, as Omar Bradley said, was in many ways the wrong war at the wrong time against the wrong enemy in the wrong place. Sorry, I mangled that a little, but I should say something nice about Omar Bradley in this series, and I'll, uh, I'll remind you that he, that he was against escalation, partly because the terrain was so foreboding and because the importance of Korea was not so much about Korea itself, it was about what this represented in a broader struggle against global communism. Remember, before the war, we thought we didn't even have to fight there. We should actually eliminate Korea from our perimeter of defense. Uh, Secretary of State Dean Acheson said as much in public speeches, basically almost an open invitation to the North Koreans and Chinese to intervene because we didn't care. And we realized after the attack, we did care because the Chinese and the Koreans and the Soviets cared. And so if they cared, we better care too. It's an amazing shift in American strategic thought from June 24th to June 26th, 1950, which should also always make us a little humble about our ability to agree on what our national interests really are, because in two days, we changed our mind completely back then. Anyway, that was a diversion and a tangent from my main point. My main point was that Ridgeway realized we needed to just stop exposing vulnerabilities and stop losing, stop you know whatever land we won one day having to race back to the Pusan perimeter in the South and give it up the next because we hadn't executed proper tactics and we were a little too worried about taking the next hill instead of just establishing strong defensive positions across the peninsula. So he really salvaged a stalemate, which is not usually the way you work your way to the top of American military fame. And yet in his case, I thought the contribution was extraordinary. And by the time we got to the summer of 1951, that war had pretty much settled into about the shape it was gonna hold for the next two years while negotiations ensued. By the way, that may be a forewarning of what could happen in Ukraine. You may wind up with a situation where the positions hold, but people still fight for a couple of years as they try to find terms that are mutually accept acceptable. We can come back to Ukraine if you like in discussion as well. But I, I really felt that what Ridgeway uh, did in Korea was extraordinary. And I thought his instincts on Vietnam were also good where he just thought whether it was the French at the NBN Pu or our own prospects that we were just not in a good position to be successful in this conflict. And maybe we didn't even really need to be successful, at least compared to other strategic priorities around the world. So that's the end of my uh, tour to Ryzen. And um, I, hope that, I hope that some of you are gonna come at me with uh, some good responses because I'm, I know there's a lot of expertise in this room. But again, I will conclude by saying, I hope I didn't sound unfair to anybody with the possible exception of LeMay and MacArthur, who I really don't like. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, but I think that even when we're lionizing these American military greats, and for the most part they are, that we should bear in mind they're also human and that any commanding officer is human and they're always gonna need the help of smart people like many of those assembled in this room. So thank you very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for question and answer. I'm proud to announce that we have just as many folks online as we have sitting here in the uh, in the crowd. Uh, so I want to remind everyone listening online: go to the Q and A block on the uh, on the live stream, and you can go ahead and type in questions uh, that we will feed to our speaker. Uh, there are no questions online yet, though. So I'll ask uh, the crowd out here. We have one right there in the middle front. Professor Nagel. Uh, Mike, uh, terrific talk. I'd like to pull you uh, 
closer to your comfort zone, if I can. Please. So you talked about uh, the very important, the most important World War II decision, which was Europe first. The United States faces the same question right now, I would argue. Mm. And the Department of Defense has currently decided that China is our pacing threat. First, do you agree with that assessment? And second, if you do, do you agree that all elements of the Department of Defense have to have China as our pacing threat? John, that's a great question. Uh, on the second, I'll start with that, I would say no. Because we are an American, as you know better than I, an American military with remarkable diversity, because we need it, because we have 50 or 60 different allies and partners around the world, different kinds of geographic theaters, different kinds of potential demands, and we've got to be supple. I've, I've been intrigued to watch the Marines debate themselves on their whole issue of getting rid of tanks, moving to a longer range anti-ship weaponry, trying to be more nimble, focus more on China. General Berger certainly had quite a go of it as commandant. I generally supported most of what he did, although I don't know that Marines ever really want to just focus on one potential enemy, where if you fight the war, you've already lost because we can't fight China. I mean, we, we need to be able to, but if the war begins, I think we've already lost. It's like Bernard Brody talking about war against the Soviet Union. The purpose of militaries from this point going forward must be not to fight, because if you fight a nuclear-armed adversary over high stakes that both sides consider very high, the uh, likelihood that you can control that, limit that geographically, and prevent devastating World War III is, is, pr is pretty scarily low, I'm afraid. So in that sense, that leaves me torn about your first question, because certainly the Chinese have the most promise as a future superpower, uh, I, although I think that America plus its allies will always be stronger than China. Let me just be clear on that, whether it's in terms of technology, terms of people, wealth, values. I think if we consider ourselves to be the leader of a coalition, there is, if you, you, know, you do the demographics, there's no point at which China overtakes us. You can debate whether China overtakes the United States by this or that metric, by this or that year. But if you look at us with our NATO and East Asian allies, I think we're in a very strong position, which means that, yes, we should probably think of China as the pacing challenge. That's a very carefully chosen term. And in Pentagon strategy documents, of course, as we know, that's the term they use. But then some people go out and talk about, we got to be ready to fight China next year. They think the attack is coming. Uh, we got to pull out of Europe because we got to put everything into Asia. And those people I strongly disagree with for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is, by the way, Europe's where the war is actually happening right now. And I don't know how it ends, but I do know our overall position to me looks militarily not bad in terms of protecting NATO territory. And I don't think we're going to need a huge number of American forces to continue that reality. I think the footprint we have in Europe today is about right for doing that. No one knows where the war is going, and this could change, but I don't feel like we are being so drained by the Europe effort that we must, by necessity, swing over to the east. Also, I've, I've done some calculations, for example, on a blockade scenario where China tries to blockade Taiwan. And what I have found, I'd be curious, John, for your instincts if you want to share them as well, but what I have found is that it's really hard to predict who wins that scenario whether we devote all of our resources to the Indo-Pacific theater or not, whether we spend a trillion dollars on defense or just 800 billion, you know, the kinds of policy debates we have about how much to swing, from the analysis I did, they're not radical enough changes in the basic situation to guarantee a US win, even if we put everything 
into the Indo-Pacific. What I think we can do is deny the Chinese any realistic hope of rapid victory for themselves. I think we have a very good chance to be able to do that. And I'm sure there'll be disagreement in the room about the, what I'm about to say. I think the Chinese are probably rational enough that that will deter. But I'm never gonna sit on that assumption casually or overconfidently. And I, I'm always looking, as I think a lot of people in this room are, for ways we can improve our posture in the Pacific, ways we can diversify our, our economic dependencies so China doesn't feel it has a, a, a chokehold on us. There are a lot of ways we have to make our position vis-a-vis -vis China even more robust in terms of deterrence. But I, th I do think we have a very high chance of succeeding with the current strategy, because I don't think the Chinese are crazy. Now, if Taiwan declares independence, all bets are off. But for other kinds of tussles, you know, who's, who's taking this island, who's sailing through this part of the South China Sea, I think the two sides will compete, will sometimes uh, bump shoulders, uh, elbow each other. I don't expect it to escalate to all-out war. And so I think something similar to our current approach is the right path to stay on. By the way, one quick aside uh, while I wait for another hand. Today, I, I came from a Brookings event today where we had Rahm Emanuel, the US ambassador to Japan, Kirk uh, Campbell, the coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs at the National Security Council, and Mira Rapp-Hooper, who works there with Kurt. And they're getting ready for the Japan-Korea-US uh, presidential summit this Friday at Camp David, just down the road. And uh, so I got to drive more or less by Camp David in between the events. And, um, it's just one example of how I like what we're doing. And I think this is a bipartisan statement because President Trump may not have cared much about the South Koreans, but most of the people who worked for him did, and most of the people who worked for the Democrats do, and we're really doing a pretty nice job of strengthening these alliance relationships in the Indo-Pacific. I don't mean to say that puts us on an easy autopilot for successful deterrence, there's a lot more to do, and a lot of those countries don't invest quite enough in their defense. Taiwan in particular needs to do a little better at its, at its own self-defense capabilities. But there's some good stuff happening in the Indo-Pacific, and we're pushing back, I think, pretty effectively against China. And again, one bit of evidence is Koreans and Japanese who were at each other's throats just a few years ago are now coming together at Camp David. So I hope that's a sign of things to come. Sir, so, well, uh, folks in the crowd uh, decide on which questions they want to ask. We do have one from online here. It's extremely close to the question that was just asked. Uh, so we'll see how, how your answers differ. But uh, uh, this is coming from a student. Uh, you touched on Korea. Uh, the U.S. is coming off of two major wars, and China declared they should be ready to attack Taiwan by 2027. The U.S. military in 1950 was short five years, uh, was a short five years from World War II. Considering the book This Kind of War, which condemned the military for being unprepared, could you expand upon the pros and cons of Generals Ridgeway, MacArthur, Bradley, and others? Well, I'm gonna, that's a great question with a lot in it, so I'm gonna be selective and just uh, drive home and, and uh, echo one of the points he made or she made in the question, which is a reminder, and lest I sound complacent in answering John's question, it still is stunning to me how the greatest military machine on earth in 1945 could so decline in just five years that we couldn't beat the North Koreans. Now, admittedly, the geography was completely different. We didn't focus our efforts there. Like Omar Bradley said, it's the wrong war against the wrong enemy at the wrong place, wrong time. 
We were focused on rebuilding Europe and making sure also that Japan would be loyally uh, our ally. So we didn't prioritize, but it's still absolutely stunning. It's, you know, I don't know what's more stunning, what's happened then or what's happened to the New York Yankees this season. But in either case, you see a, just an amazing hegemon brought back to Earth. The good news was we had the ability to recover, and we did. And, um, and you know, we had to down, we were spending 35% of GDP on our military at the end of World War II, so we obviously did need to downsize. But we, did, we, we got on a curve that just really had no bottom, with no floor, and just didn't maintain proper quality standards even for poor Task Force Smith or anybody else that was sort of out on the periphery of our strategic priorities. And so I think, I don't know, I, I'm sure a lot of you have opinions on this too, but whatever size we're at in our military, I think it's really important to maintain high readiness standards and high quality because one of the dangers of what we did in the 40s was just hollow out force structure. And we've seen that at other times in our history too, to the point where you know, the quality standards suffer and the responsiveness wasn't there. Anyway, those are just a couple of reflections on that question. By the way, one more reason, I, I, if you don't mind, while I wait for hopefully another hand to go up, uh, let me just say one more reason about why I think it's important to understand history and why I wrote the book. And I hope that the Army War College continues to believe this, because a lot of the inspiration for me to do this book was that I had read or talked with John Noggle, Dave Petraeus, Stan McChrystal, my old boss John Allen at Brookings, a Marine uh, General, and others who knew history well and were putting civilians to shame. I went to a policy school and got a PhD there in international relations, and I didn't know my military history. And I wasn't even expected to, which was an atrocious reality. And the reasons why I would say it's important, I hope, I hope Carlisle remembers this too. I'm sure you do better than most of the civilian policy schools in the country. For one thing, of course, there's the human element of looking to individuals, even some of the ones that I debated and tore down a little bit tonight, looking to them for inspiration, but also a reminder of just what someone like me who hasn't been in combat can never really appreciate, which is you know just the, the test of your will, the test of your emotions, and to try to draw inspiration from the fact that other people have, have done it, and some of them have done it well, and they can be role models. So that's part of why you have to study history. Another part is history is what produced where we are today. So how can you understand today's world if you don't know history? I just mentioned Japan and Korea. Why did it take until 2023 to have this summit? It's because the history question kept interfering with their ability to get along. And so if you don't understand history, you can't understand today. That's a second reason. And then a third reason at sort of a military level is we always debate, you know, What's the new technology? Is cyber warfare gonna dominate? Are we all gonna have Terminators ruling the world? Or you know, what about hypersonic weapons? And we're always, we get a short list of new exotic weapons and especially inside the beltway, these become sort of the buzzwords and what everybody wants to talk about in defense. And you do have to think about them because obviously the enemy, potential enemy may think about them and to maintain deterrence, you better make sure you're pretty capable in these new technologies yourself. But if you wanna understand the basic nature of warfare, I think the best thing you can do is to look at centuries of data on warfare equals history. Centuries of data on warfare is military history. That's what military history is. And so when you do that, lessons emerge about what war tends to be like. Conrad and I each alluded to this earlier on. 
and I mentioned it briefly in passing, I, I said that a lot of times there are turning points in wars even later than you expect. Uh, yeah, overconfidence is such a danger in war, both before you start, because you think you have a battle plan that's gonna out-trick and outsmart the enemy, but even during a war, when you get complacent about the trend line you think you're on until it changes. And so I've been struck by this in every one of these major conflicts, maybe with the partial exception of Vietnam, which I'm not really sure ever had any great <laughs> positive turning points for us, but, but pretty much every other one. And let me just mention a counterfactual about the Civil War, which again, many people have discussed with greater Civil War expertise than I, but I think as late as the summer of 1864, the North still could have lost that war. Because in the North, uh, at that point, there was such war fatigue. Lincoln was unpopular. McClellan was running for president against him. Sherman hadn't yet taken Atlanta or carried out his march to the sea. Uh, Grant was struggling you know, with Meade to make his way battle by battle down the Virginia countryside to finally be in a position to reach Appomattox the following year, starting in 1864 uh, with his campaign, you know, from the spring of that year onward, but it took a whole year. And now we can look back on that campaign and see a logic to the whole thing. And Grant knew what he was doing because he knew he could replenish his forces better than Lee could. But the average newspaper reader didn't know that. The average citizen didn't know that. So as late as 1864, I think if somehow Sherman had failed to take Atlanta around September 1st, I think there's a chance McClellan would have won the election. And because all wars are ultimately about politics, McClellan wins the election, that war probably ends with the South independent. So that's just one example, and we can debate that one if you want, but to me it's a plausible argument, and it's just uh, a reminder of how ultimately unpredictable human conflict really is. So I think, you know, you, you don't get that from reading futuristic accounts of the next war. Because the futuristic accounts of the next war are always about how this fancy technology is gonna zap the bad guy before he even knows what hit him. That's the way futuristic accounts tend to go. But the past tells us to always be wary of those kinds of predictions. Sorry for the sermon. I'm Usman. I'm attending the War College this year in 2024. Uh, thank you very much for the fascinating information that you have pre uh, presented. Uh, in my 30 years of military career, uh, I, the leaders, military leaders that you have mentioned, I always used to think these are great leaders, and today I could come to know that they had also some flaws. So my question is that uh, for a strategic planning, there is a formatted approach. And uh, I understand that now that approach is very much refined, but I'm sure at that period of time also, there was an approach and it was a formatted approach. So in your research, could you find out something, whether they made a mistake in their formatted approach or, or, or they made their mistakes because of their, some of the wishful thinking that they wanted to do and they just did it? So That's a great can, question. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and of course, it's, it's a very hard question because of the scope of history we're talking about. I think I would, if you don't mind, even though I was asked to talk about World War II, I'm gonna answer your question by referring to two cases before that, the Civil War, US Civil War, and World War I. And in the Civil War, basically nobody did any planning. I mean, in fact, uh, in April of 1861, Lincoln said, my strategy is to have no strategy. 
And what he meant was he was more intent on convincing the Confederates that they didn't have to fight, that, that the whole idea of secession was just sort of a little bit of a you know, fringe movement, and that if he was generous enough and inclusive enough that he could persuade the South not to come back. So the last thing he really wanted to do was gin up his war plans. And I think there were 93 people working in the War Department back then. And uh, also it was um, Stephen Douglas, who came from my hometown in uh, Canandaigua, New York, and uh, who had lost to Lincoln, well, who had lost the famous debates to Lincoln, if you will, and um, been his you know, opponent in the Senate Illinois race a couple of years before, and who was about to pass away. He was sick at the time, but he visited Lincoln in the White House in April of 1861. And Lincoln was saying, yeah, I think I might need 50,000 troops. And Douglas was like, no, you need 200,000 at a minimum. So in the Civil War, nobody did any real planning. And the idea of war was sort of a romanticized, you know, the first battle of Manassas is the classic example of what people expected. It was more or less a picnic for Washingtonians. That's what they expected. It's not what they got. World War I, we proved, or the Germans proved, that the opposite extreme is also a bad idea. <laughs> At least the opposite extreme done the wrong way because uh, von Moltke and then and, and Schlieffen and the others who constructed these elaborate, logistically elegant plans for how they could swing a lot of the German army through the Low Countries and Northern France. And then if they kept everything just so, take Paris within 40 days, and then swing most of that force to the east on their beautiful railroad system, where they could, you know, better than today, set the schedule and keep to it. I'm teasing my German friends, don't worry. I just read an article about how German trains aren't doing so well these days. Anyway, the, the, the Germans persuaded themselves that they could pull this thing off. And it was incredibly precise down to, you know, the number of train lines and the number, train cars and the number of horse-drawn wagons for the movement through Belgium and France. It was incredibly elegant and beautiful and absolutely ridiculous because it forgot what Clausewitz, uh, who should have been on their minds, had written 70, 80 years before about the fog of war, you know, and plans not surviving contact with the enemy. It wasn't all Clausewitz, but you know, the, the general notion that, that in war, uh, everything is simple, but even the simple things are hard. You know all the cliches. The, bo the bottom line is, you know, maybe Muhammad Ali or was it Joe Frazier said it best, uh, no plan survives my first punch. And the, the Germans in 1914 forgot that. So I think when you go through history, what you see is that if there's groupthink, and let me uh, even bring this into the American debate, um, the, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about, and some people in this room spent a lot of time fighting and suffering through, was an example of where I think through, and I hate to speak too uh, indelicately of, of, of the deceased, although I guess I've been doing that all night, so I, why, why, why stop now? Uh, um, but Secretary Rumsfeld was a bright guy, and I was privileged to know him a little bit, and I admired some of his thinking. But <clears throat> assuming away the post-Saddam stabilization mission, and then asking just a small part of the military to worry about that, and taking central command out of that planning effort, and otherwise putting this off into a little box where it could be politically ignored, and hopefully somehow, you know, like an ostrich putting his head in the sand, never matter on the battlefield, was an example of how even the modern American military can do this. Not because most people in this room would ever counsel such a strategy, 
but because through politics and the fact that we are ultimately run by civilians who can be fallible and who can play politics with war plans, even elaborate military planning can ignore huge requirements or go badly awry uh, and just sort of be, be deaf and blind to key realities. So I'm afraid it's a problem that presents itself throughout all these different kinds of situations. Mike Daniel Cripps, um, faculty at the War College. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, faculty at the War College. A little bit following up, um, or uh, you know, pushing even a little bit further um, um, from the previous question. Um, if we're if we're, we're we're trying to understand history as as a way of of helping us to to solve potential you know current strategic problems. Um, from, from the historical figures that you, that you looked at and that you presented on today, um, what did they get wrong about history, their history, of course? So they looked back, so we look back at World War I, we look back at World War II. So where did they look back to? And where, in your thinking, did they get something wrong from history? Or, or what is it, some of those big pictures, you mentioned groupthink, you mentioned overconfidence. But where does a Admiral Halsey or a Dr. Arthur look into the past, and and where, from your reading and your research, where where did where was there a misuse of history, if you will? It's a great question. I'm not sure I'm going to have anything close to a good answer, but I I do think you know you, you ask what what about the Eisenhowers and the Marshalls made them thoughtful, and and made them temperate and made them you know, willing to remember all the things that could go wrong. And I'm sure part of it was their personal qualities as human beings. They're, I think, both pretty good people, thoughtful people, wise people. So I don't know how to separate those qualities from their actual study of war. You may remember better than I about some of these individuals. But, of course, a lot of them had been involved in World War I. And they had sometimes fought in World War I. And so um, I, I'm not sure I want to make some grand sweeping claim that the ones who fought on the ground in World War I were a little more sober about war than the ones who you know, commanded an aircraft carrier of a type that hadn't even existed in World War I. We could try to, to construct that sort of a theory. But to be honest, my, my more honest answer is uh, I, don't, I think it has to do with the individual and the degree to which they're willing to be reflective as opposed to, I mean, you can teach it, and you should teach it here. We should teach it where I teach and where I write. We should try to hope that more uh, people in the future will remember the lessons of history than have in the past. But I ultimately think you also can't force somebody to think about something they don't want to think about, which is why even chat GBT isn't going to solve the problem. You know, and it's, it's just going to always be an unending struggle between people who want to slow down, think about what could go wrong, and the ones who are just entrepreneurial in both, you know, and this, this is both a bad and a good thing about human nature, that there are people who want to say, I want to do it completely differently. I'm not going to feel constrained by the past. I'm smarter. I'm more clever. And you don't want to completely kill that part of the human brain, because <laughs> it's what leads to progress. But that's why I think spending enough time on war, you also realize, wow, it really is striking how many of our wars just turned out a lot worse than we thought. 
a lot worse. And for everyone that turns out a little better or goes a little faster, the ones that go worse are not only more numerous, but more consequential because they last multiple years and have huge consequences and cost hundreds of thousands of lives and you know, billions of dollars. So I guess that's the best I can do at an answer. I'll, I'll think about it on the way home and I'll need the two hour drive to figure out a better answer, but I appreciate it. Question. All right, folks, uh, we have time for one more question. This gentleman in blue. Okay. Colonel Matthias Walk, also from uh, the U.S. Army War College International Fellow. Uh, at the beginning of your presentation, and it deals with uh, leadership, you mentioned uh, they deserved also as heroes. My question is, my first question, what is a hero for you, a military hero? Is it only a military professional or is it more looking at the eight biographies? And also, second question, looking at the eight biographies, uh, could we learn something as military leaders on an operational or strategic level from these biographies? So um, I'm glad you asked, because I, I feel a little guilty just focusing on four and five star officers as if they're the only people that matter. I think the, a lot of times the heroes in the wars are the people who bear the burden and the sacrifice and don't get the glory. And, don't make the big command decisions. And so I just, you know, I've been lucky and John knows this and I've, I've been around a lot of amazing American and German and other uh, NATO soldiers and other uh, members of different services. And just the level of, of service and uh, putting oneself second is inspirational to me at whatever level. So the term hero should not be conflated with being famous or being uh, you know, highly anointed in the ranks. I think it's, at a more human level, it's about inspiration and about values and you know, bravery and also good decisions in whatever tactical setting you're responsible for. So I probably should have thrown in a few more junior officers or enlisted in my discussion, but I was trying to link it to high-level strategic decision-making, which is why I stuck with the four and five stars, and which is why you know, I tried to underscore that these are inspirational figures and they were famous enough that we can still read about them 100 years or 80 years later. So in that sense, they do have an enduring status that most of the privates and other, you know, uh, lower ranking people do not in history. But the heroism, I think, is through the ranks at all levels in terms of bravery, sacrifice, willingness to risk death, willingness to risk death on behalf of someone else. To me, that would be what the clearest definition of a hero would be. Sir, we had a command override. We have one last question right here in front. Uh, gentleman in the red shirt. China or Russia as a, my con I am very concerned about the uh, Chinese maritime saturation. Mm -hmm both with their naval fleet, their fishing fleets, and their commercial uh, fishing vessels, uh, uh, commercial cargo vessels. Yep. They have saturated most of the oceans. The lower draft, small, shorter draft of the Chinese Navy is such that they very are capable of riverine operations, visiting the small ports. Lately, they've been adding people to the various groups, including their fishing vessels, of people who speak uh, local languages, who have no local culture. Uh, it's not only the, the adventures that they've been having lately in the Solomons, 
but across the entire Pacific. They have a whole diplomatic uh, assault going on, which the United States and its allies have not answered at all. Well, let me agree with 95% of what you said until the last sentence. But I'm glad you said it, because the last thing I would want to do is come out of here leaving the impression that I'm complacent about China's challenge. So I'm glad you drove home those points. I do share your concerns. I just think we're doing a better job at responding than you're giving us credit for. And I think we'll continue to. And uh, just to let you know where I'm coming from, I actually had a paper released yesterday on the defense budget where I said the Biden-McCarthy deal on defense does not provide enough money for defense. So it's not like I'm actually saying we can just lower our guard. Uh, I wasn't calling for the 3 to 5% increase that the National Defense Commission did in its last report, but I was saying I think we need positive real growth to carry out the strategy and to keep having the kinds of summits and tightening of alliances that we're doing with the South Koreans and the Japanese this week. We got to keep doing all the stuff we're doing. But I also worry a little bit that we could demonize the Chinese to the point where we get into a little bit of a vicious spiral. And they feel the same way towards us. And then we have a small crisis that we allow to blow up. What I'd like to argue is that our position is a little stronger than we sometimes appreciate. Our efforts, I think, are a little more vigorous than, than, than you asserted. And therefore, we should, be, we should be tough with the Chinese, but we should do it with a certain amount of confidence and a certain amount of calm. So I actually agree with most of what you said, though. I'm glad you said it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.